Number three can be found in your Pew Bible on page 1182. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8, page 1182. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. I'm actually glad to see that all of you have a bulletin today because I got an email last night, or late Friday night, from Pastor Chuck saying that we might not have bulletins this Sunday because um, after he printed it, um, the folding machine was just jamming all the bulletins, and he said we lost like half of them because they were all like getting jammed in the folding machine, which and our folding machine maybe is like 10, 20 years old. I don't even know how old it is, but it was jamming, and he's like, you're not going to have a bulletin this Sunday, uh, but thank God he said he was going to try to come again on um, Saturday and try one more time. And so it seems that it worked, and God healed our folding machine, and so you all have bulletins. So be thankful, because there's a lot of work. You don't realize how much work is involved in getting you bulletins every Sunday. So I've been reading um, this book, which focuses on this demographic of people aged 18 to 29. Uh, those that are in this generation called like Gen Y, or Millennials, or Mosaics, and the book speaks on why so many people in this age group uh, in the U.S., um, why uh, church-going people in this age group leave the church. And, you know, we're not talking about people who uh, never attended church or who, didn't cons- or who never considered themselves Christians. Um, we're talking about the insiders, those who attend the church. Most of them, from a very young age, they began attending church many of whom were leaders uh, in some point in their church, maybe like leaders of their youth group or helping with uh, children's ministry or or some other ministry. Um, These were the insiders. And so this book talks about why so many studies have shown that up to half of them leave the church and sometimes even the faith. And the author breaks these dropouts into three categories, and I want to describe one of these characters, or these categories for you. He uh, calls one of these groups of people the exiles. And he defines the exiles as this. He says, these are the people who grew up in church and are now physically or emotionally disconnected in some way, but these people also remain energized to pursue God-honoring lives. He describes them as feeling lost, yet hopeful. 
And one of the hallmark traits of these exiles is they're feeling that their day-to-day life is disconnected from their church experience. They feel the church has failed them in this. Some of the comments that they have made to describe their sentiments were things like, I want to find a way to follow Jesus that connects with the world I live in. God is more at work outside the church than inside, and I want to be a part of that. I want to help the church change its priorities to be what Jesus intended it to be. I'm a Christian, but the institutional church is a difficult place for me to live out my faith. And so, of course, reading you know, this book, reading, hearing these statements, you know, it makes you reflect on your own church and consider you know, whether any of this is true here. Uh, maybe some of you who regularly attend CBCGB, you come here regularly, but you also share some of these sentiments. And, you know, this week I had, um, I had to uh, give directions to someone who was emailing me about the church. He, he emailed, and, and this person said he was interested in visiting, but he had never been here before. So I had to email him uh, detailed directions on how to get here. And I was listing out the instructions on how to get here. It occurred to me, you know, actually, how hidden our church is. I mean, unless you were really looking for it, you could just drive by and you wouldn't even know that it was there. I mean, even though our address is, you know, on this main road, Spring Street, you know, we're actually at the end of this small cul-de-sac off of Spring Street, which you could just drive by and never know it was there if you weren't looking for it. I mean, there's no big sign on Spring Street that says that our church is here except for this little sign on some lamppost. And even when you're driving down, you know, Route 2, I mean, with all the trees and everything, you could drive by our building and never know what it was. I mean, you could look up, and if you were, uh, if you were uh, paying enough attention, you could see that there's a cross on the top of the building, and you might figure out it's a church. But other than that, you wouldn't know much more about it. And as I was thinking about this and, and writing down this instructions, you know, the thought struck me. It's like, I hope this isn't symbolic of our church or our congregation you know, that we're just this little group of people tucked away in our hidden corner. And, you know, we're just this body of Christians that don't really make any significant difference to anyone outside of the church. We're not really making an impact in the real world. And so what do we need to do to make an impact on society? Um, this week, we're actually in an in-between Sunday when it comes to our sermon series. You probably were listening to the scripture reader, and you're like, why are we in Titus? And it's because we're in this in-between week. Uh, we finished, actually, all of the part of Joshua that we were supposed to this quarter, and then we're going to wait until next month to start our new series, which is picking up in Revelation, where we left off uh, in the spring. And so this week, uh, Pastor Chuck, who, who's away attending someone's ordination, allowed me to just preach something different, whatever I wanted. And so I picked this passage in Titus because I think the message is very timely for us today. You know, we live in a society that's becoming more and more pluralistic. We live in a society that's becoming more antagonistic towards Christianity, one which does not believe in absolute truth but many truths, uh, one in which standards of morality are rapidly declining, where things considered sinful in the past are now considered the normal now. I mean, this describes our society today. And actually, this perfectly describes the society that
that Titus was in, although he actually had it even worse. And this is why the book of Titus was written. You know, if you have your Bibles open to Titus, you can flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 1. And you'll see in verse 5, Paul, uh, who wrote this letter, says this. He says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Understand that Paul didn't really do Titus any favors. You know, Titus accompanied Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And we learn from this verse that he left Titus in this island of Crete so that he could basically fix the mess that was the church in Crete. And what added to the difficulty was that Titus was to do this in a place that really wasn't friendly towards Christians. You know, life on the island was rough. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, um, you can look at verse 12 of chapter 1, and you can see that even one of their own townspeople said this. He said, The inhabitants of the, of the city, uh, these Cretans, they are liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And so as you can imagine, you know, Titus needed much guidance and encouragement to know how to make things right, to turn this church around, you know, to make it a church that really, in a sense, was light and salt to the world. And so Paul wrote this letter to Titus to give him such. To summarize the first two chapters, you know, Titus is only three chapters long, to summarize the first two chapters in chapter one, Paul tells Titus to begin fixing the church by appointing leaders over the local churches who can actually lead and are qualified to lead. In chapter two, he tells Titus to teach the members of the church correct things and to get rid of all the troublemakers in the church. And so now in chapter 3, he shifts his focus to instruct Titus on how to have this church impact the society around her. And we could boil Paul's instructions into one mandate, which would simply be, do good to all. Do good to all. He's telling us, you know, it's not enough just to have right doctrine, but people have to see you living it out. And this theme of doing good is a very prominent one in Titus, because in chapter 3, he uses the word good three times. And in other chapters, we'll see, he, he uses this word good quite frequently. But what does it specifically mean to do good? You know, Paul elaborates this in the first two, chap- two verses of chapter 3. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. So in these two verses, Paul lists out seven specific things, as you can see on the slide, that he wants people to do. Be subject to rulers, authorities, be obedient, do what is good, slander no one, be peaceable, be considerate, Show true humility towards all men. And you might look at this list and and say, oh yeah, this is all very good. But I wonder why, like, the first thing Paul mentions is to be subject to rulers and authorities. I mean, why did he specifically point that out? And there's a very important reason, I think, why he did that, which is worth elaborating on. You know, being in, in an election year now, you know, we're hearing a lot about politics, and we're hearing a lot of Christian leaders, you know, tell us that, tell us as Christians to get more involved, 
You know, we as Christians need to rise up to demand our rights, you know, to make sure we have an impact on our legislation and judicial process. But, you know, is that really our purpose? You know, is our purpose to politicize and campaign to legislate a particular agenda? We have to understand that for Titus and for the situation for the Christians in Crete, they had it much worse than we have it now. At the time, if you're familiar, if you know, the, the Cretans were ruled by a foreign government. They were under the control of the Roman Empire. And during the time that the letter was written, the ruler of the, the Roman Empire was this tyrant named Nero, who wasn't particularly fond of Christians. You know, there was uh, instances that were recorded where you know, he would just take Christians and set them on fire to use as nightlights so that he could have light in his palace at night and in his gardens. And you know, Paul knew the climate. Paul understood what was going on. Paul had seen this before. He's seen inequalities for both Christians and non-Christians. He's seen people being oppressed. He knew what it was like to be in the, the rule of tyrants and petty dictators who would just murder people on, the, on a whim. You know, but recognize that in all of his letters, including Titus, he never tells his readers to rise up as believers and protest against all the evils going on. He never says, you need to try to moralize the pagan culture around you. What he continually wrote in all his letters is, you need to evangelize it. He instructed people to preach the gospel, to share about this gospel which transforms lives, and live in such a way so that outsiders could see the truth of the gospel. That's why he says in verse 1, be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient to them. And he includes this with the other statements that he makes about how to treat all people. Because, once again, Paul didn't see it as a Christian's duty to try to push some political agenda. He wanted to see the message of Christ shared, and he didn't want anything to take away from it. I was reading this quote from David Rambo, who was um, the former president of uh, the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. And commenting about this point, he said this. He said, God expects us to be salt in the world, but let's do it in the context of God's redeeming love for all men and women. We must focus on the gospel, proclaiming it winsomely to secular people rather than alienating them on matters that are not central to our message. So once again, instead of worrying about politics or you know, the evil leadership and how to overthrow them, you know, Paul says, do these seven things. You know, be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient to them. Be willing to do what is good. Slander no one. Be peaceable. Be considerate. Show true humility to all men. And then in verse 8, to reinforce what he previously wrote, he summarizes, I want those who have trusted God to be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good because these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see, if you do these things, they will be excellent and profitable for everyone because people will see the power of God at work and be drawn to it. Back in chapter 2 in Titus, in verses 7 to 8, he instructs young men to do good so that those who oppose them may be ashamed 
because they would have nothing bad to say about them. And then the next two verses where he addresses slaves, he says, basically, do good so that they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I mean, that's the whole point of doing good, so that people may see the truth and transforming power of the gospel in our lives. And I could, you know, spend some time going over these seven um, virtues, you know, more in depth and explain more, but I, I think you get the gist of it. So, you know, for time's sake, I don't want to spend time just going over each of these things individually. But, you know, I would just ask you, as you look over these traits, how well do you exemplify them? You know, do you slander no one? Are you peaceable? Are you considerate? Do you show true humility to all men, not just people we like or we happen to get along with? In verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul doesn't just instruct people to do good. He says, God's desire is to raise up people who are eager to do what is good. Not just willing, but eager and excited about doing good. This is how to attract people to the gospel. When I was in Asia, recently I had a chance to talk with one of my friends whom I sometimes do ministry with. Um, He shared with me a, a project that his company started a few years ago. Uh, to develop and run a koi farm in China. Um, you know, koi being the large goldfish that, you know, we, we like to see in ponds, things like that. So th- they wanted to, to build this koi farm to generate income, to, to give back to the local residents, to help them out. And he had a person on board who was this expert in how to run a koi farm. And he was able to get more wealthy Christian investors involved to provide capital to, to begin this koi farm. And, you know, though it was a noble idea, it turned out that the person who was the so-called expert in running the koi farm really didn't know what he was doing. And, and the business was failing miserable, miserably. You know, after a period of time, they realized that they were just rapidly losing money. The investors were just losing all this money and pouring cash in. And so they had to just close the business to, to cut their losses. And to do so, they felt it best just to give the local residents the business. They just wanted to just hand it over to them so that they could try to generate some income off of it. So they gave the residents the business, they turned over the remaining inventory, whatever was left um, of it. You know, one of the problems was this koi farm, farm expert said you know, he knew how to raise the fish properly, but he didn't, and so all these fish were dying. Um, but whatever was left, you know, they gave it to the residents. And whatever cash they had in the bank, they didn't take it back. They gave it all to the local residents. And it turned out that some of the local residents actually knew more about the business than the so-called expert. And they were able to turn uh, the business around, and, and, they're able, and, and it's running now, and, it, and it's generating uh, income for the local residents. And, and it's kind of neat. We went to, to see this place one time, and they have like a, 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 where you, where you walk in, they have this display about the origin of the koi farm and some of the local residents were Christian. And so they, even in Chinese, there's this testimony about, um, how they got the koi farm and how Christ has helped them to, um, to just make the koi farm successful. So it's pretty neat. But the point I want to make is that when they closed the business and when they turned over the business to the local residents, the government saw what happened. And the government commented, they said, you Christians are better than the Taiwanese. <laughs> she said, when the Taiwanese come in, 
and their businesses fail, they just cut bait and they run and they leave us to clean up the mess. For you Christians, you tried to make sure everything was taken care of, you gave us your assets, you gave us you know, cash to help keep the business going. And so they were impressed. And they said, you know, even though we're not sure about your Christianity, you know, we like you Christians because you do things right. And this is how people will know that the gospel is true. And, you know, it doesn't have to be such a major thing. You know, I believe all of us are given opportunities on a regular basis to just do good, to show that we're peaceable and considerate, to demonstrate humility to others. You know, it could just be like a kind word to an overburdened person. You know, a simple act of kindness like, you know, telling a mom in your kid's playgroup that you're going to watch her kids for the afternoon so she can have some time off. You know, helping a college student um, get settled in. Uh, you know, getting involved in the community and doing more community service. Uh, you know, all this just to let people know that Christ is, is Christ and God transforms. Um, one other time when I was in China, um, we got off a train after arriving at our destination and we had to walk down this real long set of steps um, with our luggage. And, and after I brought down my luggage, I looked up, this, on, on, up at the stairs and I noticed that there was this older woman with a large cart of goods trying to come down the stairs and she was having trouble. So I told one of my teammates, hey, watch my bags, I'm going to go help this woman. So I, you know, I helped the woman and brought down her luggage and she was very thankful at the end. And so I told one of our translators to tell her that, you know, don't thank me, you know, just thank Jesus. And the reason I was a little extra motivated too to help this woman is because she actually had a traveling companion and from the way the person was dressed, um, this, this man was a Buddhist monk. And it was surprising because this person wasn't helping her with her luggage at all. And so I wanted her to know, I said, even though the Buddhist doesn't help you, the Christians can help you. <laughs> and she was quite, I think, thankful for that. And, you know, it, it's not, Paul recognizes that it's not in our human nature to want to do good. You know, to show consideration, to show humility. So in the rest of the passage, Paul tells us how we can be motivated to do so. So the first way Paul tries to motivate us is to tell his readers, remember your past. He states in verses 3 to 5, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So in the same way he listed seven virtues in verses 1 to 2, he lists seven conditions people were in before becoming Christian. You can see them on the slide here. You know, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hated, or actually what that means is we hated God, and we hated one another. In one sense, by listing all these characteristics, Paul acknowledges how difficult it is to do good to unbelievers because they exhibit such traits. Yeah, they're, they're hard to get along with. Yeah, it's not easy to like these people. But on the other hand, he lists these traits because he wants us to recognize that we too were once like them. 
And you know, when you look at this list, maybe it is difficult for you to identify with some of these things. Because you think about your life and you're like, you know, I'm not that bad. I wasn't that bad before I became a Christian. You know, we don't necessarily see ourselves being foolish or deceived or hating God or hating others. But you know, that may be part of the problem. Because if we don't see ourselves as being that bad, we don't think of God as needing to do that much to save us. And if we think that God didn't have to do that much to save us, we think that we shouldn't have to do that much towards others because God didn't do that much for us. You know, maybe you grew up in church and you consider yourself, even before you're a Christian, a, a basically good person. You know, sure, you, you know, you weren't a drug dealer or mass murderer or anything like that. But, you know, it does, doesn't mean that God had to do anything less to save you. you know, he still had to send his son to die on the cross for your sins. You know, we may not think of ourselves as being that bad, but we were that bad. You know, scripture describes those apart from God as being enemies of God, as those who love darkness rather than light, as those who are controlled by the prince of this world. We were like that. We were in that category. And it's not because we were somewhat moral people or ones who tried to live a good life that God saved us. You know, verse 5 clearly tells us it's because of righteousness, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of God's mercy. It's only on the basis of his love and grace for us. And when we fully recognize that, we'll be more inclined to treat others with love and grace because we realize that this is how God treated us. You know, it shouldn't surprise us when people apart from Christ, you know, act selfishly or rude or do carnal things. I mean, that's how they should act in the condition that they were, are in. And so we shouldn't get too bothered by it. But we also understand that the only reason we aren't like them and we don't act that way is because of the grace and mercy of God in our lives, not because of anything we've done or did or will do. I mean, the greater our understanding of this, the greater impact it will have on our response because, and how we respond to people because we understand the work of God in our lives. I'll tell you, some of the most gracious and kind believers I've met are those who came from very dark, sordid past because they do realize how much God has saved them. And hate to say it, but some of the least gracious and kind believers I've met are those who grew up in church because they somehow feel a sense of entitlement and privilege. And so Paul tells us, Remember how you once were. Remember your past. Remember the condition you were in and how God had grace and mercy to save us. And once we remember our past, the second way Paul motivates us is to have us recognize our present, to recognize our present state. He tells us in verses 5 to 6 that those who have accepted Christ into their lives have been washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, God has not only forgiven our sins and made us clean, but we have received the Holy Spirit who transforms us and enables us to do what isn't initially in our nature to do. We can act kindly and we can exhibit humility and we can do good deeds because the Holy Spirit who works in us helps us to do so. 
You know, I notice since I've been in this church, a lot of people like really get into these like psychometric in- instruments. You know, I hear people talk and say things. Oh yeah, you know, I am ENFJ or ISTJ or ABCD. You know, whatever. And you know, those those tools may help us understand ourselves better. You know, my fear is that we can use them as an excuse not to do what we ought. You know, oh, you know, I'm not an extroverted person, so I don't have to do outreach. Or, you know, I'm introverted, so I don't have to talk to visitors or or newcomers. You know, I'm dominant hostile, so I can just be angry all the time. (laughs) You know? You know, they they didn't have such tests in the first century, and, and I don't think this would make any difference to Paul, because I don't think he would buy into any of it. You know, knowing your tendencies... Yeah, sure, these tests help you understand yourself better, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, they have some purpose. You know, I was a, a, a counseling psych emphasis in seminary, so I understand what these tests do, but, you know, knowing your tendencies doesn't exempt you from doing what you ought to do. It just changes your outward expression of how it's done. Yeah, you know, sure, you may not be intro- extroverted, but... You know, you can evangelize because God has changed your convictions and the Holy Spirit equips you to do so. I mean, I know very introverted people who are quite active and successful in witnessing. And, you know, even if you're hostile, it doesn't mean you can't be considerate to others and treat all people with humility because God transforms you. You know, as believers, we have been changed. And so Paul is challenging us in this passage to show it. You know, that's why he repeats himself in verse 8, telling Titus, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. This is what the world wants to see. This is how we will impact society. You know, if you tell a person, oh yeah, I know this great financial advisor, you know, he's amazing because he like takes people's money and just multiplies it rapidly, you know, the person will probably spend... Okay, well, you know, who are his clients? You know, let me talk to them. Let me see what he did for them. Or if you say, you know, this doctor is great because, you know, he can cure cancer. I know all these patients who have been cured from cancer, you know, and seeing him. You know, they're going to say, well, let me talk to some of the patients. So in the same way, you know, we say, you know, God's an amazing God who saves people and transforms people. The people are going to respond, show me what a saved person looks like. And I'll, know, and I'll know whether your God is that great. And I'll know whether I want to believe in your God. So if we call ourselves followers of Christ, you know, this is our mandate. When people look at you, do they see a transformed life which will show them that God is a great God? Do they see the good that we do which sets us Christians apart from other people? And I know we don't, we're not, um, most of our fellowships aren't meeting this week, so... You know, we're not having small groups and, and we're not going to be doing a study on this passage. But, you know, if we did, one challenge I would have for you before you go to your small groups is, like, just even this week, keep your spiritual antennas up. You know, look for opportunities to do good to non-Christians. And then when you come back to your small group, share with them how you were able to exemplify this during the week, you know, this week when you go back to work or school. You know, when I was in China this past, past month, I had a chance to talk to uh, some middle schoolers who were Christians. I knew they were um, regular church attenders, and they said they accepted Christ, but I, 
somehow I had this impression that maybe they were just kind of playing church. So I asked them, you know, how does being a Christian make a difference in your life? How do people see that you're different outside of the fact that you go to church on Sundays? And so one girl, she was thinking for a moment, and then she shared this story of how there was this boy in her school that was basically an outcast. You know, no one talked to this person. He was always by himself. People talked, no one talked to him, but they talked about him and made fun of him. And apparently one day, she, she, from what I could understand, um, she told her mother about this boy. And her mother, who was a Christian, said, you need to reach out to this boy, and you need to speak to him, and you need to try to befriend him. And so she proceeded to explain how she was convicted and took strides to try to reach out to this boy and try to befriend him. And I miss understanding how the story ended and, and how the boy reacted, but you know, I was impressed that this 13-year-old student would be brave enough to do something like this. And after she shared, you know, I kind of smiled at her and I told her translator to tell her, now I know how Christ makes a difference in your life. And this is what Paul is asking of us to demonstrate through our lives the transforming power of God. Once again, we're not here to push any political agenda. We're not here to necessarily try to moralize our culture. We're here to do good deeds so that the watching world can see Christ's power in our lives. This is our mandate. This is what those described as exiles at the beginning of this message want to see that our faith influences our daily lives. This is what society wants to see, that the Christ we pledge allegiance to actually does transform and does great things in our lives. And this is how we will impact society. And by God's grace, he will use our good deeds and he'll bring many to saving faith because that is our purpose, to share the message, the saving message of Jesus Christ and to show with our lives that we have a great God who loves us and has mercy on us and transforms our lives to be different from those in society. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this passage in Titus. Lord, I mean, the message is, is just such, such a simple one that we've probably heard many times. You know, just do good to all people. Uh, but Lord, we do acknowledge that you know, even though it's a very simple message, uh, we're not always so faithful in living it out. And so, Lord, help us to remember our past. And help us to remember that we were once like uh, the people that irk us and, and get us mad and make us angry. And, and, and remember that the Holy Spirit is in us to transform us and to enable us to do uh, things that we cannot do on our own. Let us not use you know, our personalities or our, our, te- you know, our, our habits or our traits to make excuses to not do what we ought to do. But let us strive through your spirit to do these things. And Lord, help us even this week to keep our spiritual eyes and ears open to look for opportunities to be Christ in this world which is watching Christians and just looking for any excuse to show or to, to be able to claim that Christians are just uh, people who are hypocrites and, and don't know what they're doing. So, Lord, just guide us and help us to be Christ to this world. 
Help us to impact our society. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.